name's Alice. I'm part of the pastoral staff here. And um, tonight is the last in a series we've been doing um, called Truth, Jesus in a Post-Truth Culture. And today I've been tasked um, with thinking about how can we share our faith in a post-truth culture. Gulp. So if you've got any ideas, quickly. <laughs> um, but before we jump in, I just kind of want to map out um, where we've gone so far with the series, so that if it's your first time here, or maybe you just kind of, ooh, you know, it's been, it's been a long January, um, so that we feel like we're all on the same page. So James kicked off the series a few weeks ago in the beginning of January, and he offered this definition of our post-truth culture. He said this, a post-truth world is not one in which the truth has ceased to exist, it is one in which it no longer matters. Um, and he used the phrase gospel resilience, um, that um, to talk about how the fact that cultures may come and go, you know, worldviews may change, may shift, but the gospel remains unchanged. The gospel never changed. Gospel resilience. You know, and by the gospel, we're talking about the saving grace of our Father in heaven and sending his son Jesus to die for us on a cross. That message, just like, you know, Paul said when we share in communion, that is something that the church has done for thousands and thousands of years because the gospel message is unchanged gospel resilience. And then Paul Crutchley then talked um, the next week about our gospel identity. And he talked about how our culture is so deeply self-focused and obsessed with self-definition. Who am I? What am I about? Um, but gospel identity cuts straight through this. Paul said this, he said, gospel identity comes when we stop trying to define ourselves altogether and let the identity God has given us as deeply loved children permeate our entire being. And then last week, James looked at gospel transformation, about how um, through reading the Bible, through the Word, and then through the Holy Spirit, through God's power, um, we uh, can become changed by the truth to look more like Jesus. Gospel transformation. So we had gospel resilience, gospel identity, and then gospel transformation. And today I've kind of called my talk Gospel Readiness. And I've taken that from Ephesians 6, where, uh, in the, where the Bible talks about the armor of God. And encourages us to get dressed in the armor of God. And it talks about almost like putting your shoes on, ready to go and share the gospel. You know, it's often the last thing you do before you leave the house. It's like put on the shoes, ready, put on your shoes, ready to share the gospel of peace. So that's what's called gospel readiness. How can we be ready to share the truth of our faith in our post-truth culture? How can we get ready? And as we said, you know, in our post-truth culture, truth has become deeply subjective, hasn't it? You know, you have your truth and I have mine. And you should be free to define what is true for you, and then I'm free to define what is true for me. And that's all good, we're friends, <laughs> unless your truth in any way impacts or confronts my truth, and then we've got a problem. That's, that's the, what our culture says, that's what post-truth culture says. And let's be honest, that is a hard context in which to share our faith. That's a hard context in which, you know, where we can even feel uncomfortable even using a word like truth, isn't it? Um, I wanted to start by telling you a story from when I was a mere 16 years old, 20 years ago, and I started studying at my local sixth form college. And um, it was kind of like grown up going to college. And when it came to choosing my subjects, I chose to do sociology as one of my A-levels. I've got to be honest, I didn't really know what it was about. It just sounded grown up. It sounded like the kind of thing you would study in college. So I did sociology. And um, my, my sociology lessons, they felt like a real step up from school. Like the tables were in like a U-shape, um, like a seminar style. Um, you were allowed to call the teacher Dave. That was his name. I'm not just being weird. And um, <laughs> we all just sat around and basically just chatted about life. We didn't do a huge amount of work, I'll be honest, which used to bug me because I was like a real kind of 
workaholic in school. And I was like, when are we actually going to do this stuff for the, uh, for the exams? But anyway, we eventually did do a module called Sociology of Religion. And everyone loved it. And there was this kind of huge debates, obviously, about faith and about God and religion. And everyone was kind of getting really kind of into these discussions. And I remember the um, only other person in the class who had any faith um, was a girl who's another Christian who went to a real high church. And she went and stole some of those communion wafers for people to try in our class. So that, there was me and her. And um, I was still a kind of a new Christian. I wasn't really sure what I kind of felt about stuff. And, and I was getting quieter and quieter. You know, I was feeling, you know, felt like I'm more and more disempowered with each discussion. And one day, I ventured to talk a bit about my faith, and immediately, my teacher, Dave, he kind of hooked me in on a discussion, and we had this big debate, and everyone else was quiet and just listening to us have this big debate. And eventually, Dave said to me, the thing is, Alice, what you're saying is you think you are right, and everyone else in this class is wrong, don't you? I denied it. <laughs> and then we had a bit more debate, and I had to concede that, yeah, maybe I did. I don't know. Uh, I felt mortified, to be honest. I was 16. I wasn't sure what I thought about my faith. You know, I was still working myself out. I was aware that culturally it wasn't okay to say that I was right and everyone else was wrong. I was aware that people in the room were finding that offensive. I was worried about how that made me sound, <laughs> whether they'd still like me. And I was also worried about how that made Christians sound or Christianity sound or Jesus sound. The atmosphere changed in the room in that moment. I wanted to see people in this class come to know Jesus. And I felt like I left that class having, with having them taken a massive backward step. It was deeply uncomfortable. Maybe you found yourself feeling like this. Maybe you've ended up feeling embarrassed or ashamed. You've tried to share your faith within our current cultural context, and it's just ugh, like that. I felt as I prepared this talk that there was some shame in the room as I did this talk. Maybe there's some shame here that you feel like you are a failure when it comes to sharing your faith. If you've ever said to yourself, do you know, I'm rubbish at sharing my faith. I'm rubbish at evangelism or whatever you want to call it. Then I just want you to know that is a lie. That is a lie. And any shame you feel doesn't have a place here. If you felt like a failure when it comes to sharing your faith, just know that is not how God sees you. You are not a failure. Maybe there's that deep fear about how you even begin to question our culture's accepted worldview. And you know, I just want you to know, I have definitely experienced that in my life. You know, there's definitely been times I like to harmonize. I'm the kind of person with a group of people, like everyone to know everyone, everyone to kind of you know, be talking about something and make sure everyone is included and okay and happy. And so I've definitely walked away from conversations where I've realized I've kind of more or less said to them that my faith works for me and something else could equally work well for someone else. Just because I was just trying to harmonize the whole time. And I've come away and I thought, you know, what? I don't actually believe that. I'm sorry, God. Oh, what do I do? As I said, if there's any shame or fear here, in the room this evening, just know that is not from God. God wants you to be free from all shame, all fear. That's what we were worshipping into, wasn't it? And from that place of freedom to share your faith with those around you. So where do we begin even looking at this question? Let's go back to the mission we've been given as followers of Jesus. We're going to dive back into the same passage that James looked at last week and Paul looked at the week before. John 17, um, the Gospel of John. It's at the moment where Jesus is praying for his disciples and he's praying to his Father in heaven. So it is a bit confusing. There's kind of eyes, yous, me, them, whatever. But it's Jesus praying to his Father about his disciples. John 17, verse 14. Father, I have given them, that's my disciples, I have given my disciples your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. 
Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. And I love the, the, the way the message version translates these verses, just to make them kind of, that helped clarify to me what is being said here. Um, the message uh, version of, the, of those verses says this, In the same way that you gave me a mission in the world, I give them a mission in the world. I give my disciples a mission in the world. I'm consecrating myself for their sakes, so there'll be truth consecrated in their, in their mission. Jesus is giving them a mission. He's giving them a mission to bring truth in the world. And just as his mission was to come and bring truth in the world, he then gives his disciples the same mission, to go and bring truth in the world, to go and do likewise, to be bearers of truth, of hope, and of light in the world. And then, of course, we are called to do the same as disciples of Jesus. And in our current post-truth culture, it can be tempting to kind of want to retreat from our world, um, to kind of assimilate, to blend in. But we are people sent by Jesus to bring transformation in the world around us. You know, as the truth of Jesus transforms us, we are then called to go and bring transformation to the world around us. You know, as the truth of Jesus transformed us, we are then called to be a people of transformation, to be bearers of truth, hope, and light. Alan Scott, who is the pastor of Anaheim Vineyard in L.A., um, he, sums, he says this in his book, um, Scattered Servants. He sums it up. He says, develop a faith that isn't just strong enough to survive culture, but that is bold enough to transform it. Develop a faith that isn't just strong enough to survive culture, but that is bold enough to transform it. And, you know, as I thought and as I wrote about this talk, just this thought occurred to me that this is the culture, this post-truth culture is the culture that God has called us to live in and be a part of has called this church to be in existence uh, among. You know, that when he ordained that we as individuals and as a church that we would live and breathe and walk upon his earth, he called us to live here, now, in this post-truth world. And he's sending us in the world as people changed by his truth to go and bring transformation. Transformation to those around us and to culture as a whole. So I just kind of wanted to, um, for the rest of the talk, just give a few pointers of how we can begin to do this, how we can ready ourselves, be gospel ready, to share our, share our faith. How do we share our faith with people in a post-truth culture? The first thing I'd say is discover their story. Discover their story. We've not done this series just to be suspicious about culture and retreat away, as I said. Um, this sermon series has not been about how to survive it. It's not just been about survival, nor is it about us feeling self-righteous, that we're so much better than everyone else out there, idiots. <laughs> no, we've gone on this journey so that we can better understand the missional context into which Jesus has called us to bring transformation, so that we can understand the world into which Jesus is sending us. That is why we've been doing this series, to listen to the story that culture is telling us that people are subscribing to, and then to think about how to respond. If you look at the Apostle Paul in the Bible, he did this beautifully in the various cultures that God led him to, where he was called to go and speak the truth of Jesus in lots of different cultures. And he has this amazing take on what this looks like in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23. He says this, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. 
I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. And again, I looked at what the Message Bible had to say. It says this, I didn't take on, this is Paul, I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. He kept his bearings in Jesus. The truth didn't change. Gospel resilience, the truth doesn't change. But he tried to experience things from their point of view. He tried to understand their story, their reality. I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did? He entered our world to experience things from our point of view. That's what theologians call incarnational mission. And that's what Paul is trying to do. Incarnational mission. Experiencing things from other people's point of view. He seeks to understand. And we see this really clearly when he goes to Athens. In Acts 17, he goes to the Greek city of Athens. And he spends, you read it in the, in the account in Acts 17, he spends time with the Athenians, um, understanding the culture, engaging with the people of the city. And then one day, he stands up in the high court in a place called Mars Hill. And he kind of looks at them and he says, you know, I've spent time with you. And this is me paraphrasing. I spent time with you guys. Um, I can see that worship is important to you. Well done. But I noticed that you're worshiping an unknown God. Well, let me tell you who that unknown God is. You should really know the truth about Jesus. And from that moment on, he preaches this sermon about Jesus. He starts by seeking to understand, by getting to know the people in his culture, in that culture. And then he, uh, he engages with them, and then he stands up and he shares the truth about Jesus. He kept his bearing in Jesus but pre- and preached the gospel. Keeping our bearings in Jesus, we can do likewise. Now, to understand someone else's point of view, that was going to involve asking some questions. Sometimes when we think about sharing our faith, we think of it kind of as a one-way thing, don't we? Less of a conversation and more of a speech that I have to tell you. You know, it doesn't really matter necessarily what the other person thinks. They just have to know they're wrong and they need to know about Jesus. Um, you know, and in those moments, we have to be right. And we have to answer every question that they've got. And we have to, by, ask, by answering every question, we eventually show them that we are right and they are wrong. But, you know, in a worldview that says everyone can make their own truth and that truth is no longer relevant, I'm not sure how far that approach will get us. It will get somewhere, I'm sure some people. But I just don't think it will get us ultimately that far. I remember once being asked to sign up for this evangelistic commission when I was a student in Sheffield. And it basically involved going out onto the streets of Sheffield with a questionnaire. And I had to ask random people going by to complete this questionnaire. And it was kind of supposed to tell them what their worldview was. Were they a pessimist, an optimist, a pragmatist, and so on. And then we were supposed to say, oh, that's interesting. Let me tell you about my Christian worldview and talk to them about that. And I created a bit of a, a stink, really, because I refused to take part in it. Because it was apparent to me that whatever answers they gave had no bearing on what I then said. I had no information about what a pragmatist was or what a pessimist was. It didn't matter. They could tell me anything. They could tell me they were a sandwich for all it mattered. And it didn't matter. I just said, that's interesting. Let me tell you about Jesus. It didn't feel very honoring. It didn't feel very authentic. I said, I'm not going out there and doing such like an inauthentic thing. And I refused to do it. But you know, I'd find that deeply off-putting if someone tried that approach on me. When people do try that and bring their knock on your door, and they don't care what you say, they're just here to tell you their truth, it's deeply off-putting, isn't it? Instead, I think it begins with a conversation, asking questions. I've been doing this discipleship program, which has been brilliant, and this week we're looking at what happens when we become defensive in conversations with people, Um, not necessarily um, just within talking about sharing our faith, but just generally in the day-to-day, what happens when we are tempted to become defensive? 
and what we're doing. And, and um, we were, as we were reading the material, we were talking about how in that moment you stop listening. You stop listening to the other person. You're thinking about yourself, how you're going to win the argument. That's often what happens when you become defensive because it's important in that moment that you win. And you stop listening. And the, um, the challenge from that, the session I did this week was to get more curious. Ask people, what is it? You know, ask people, what is your story? What do you think about Jesus? Tell me what you think. That's interesting. How did you come to think that? Oh, that's interesting. What does that look like for you? What about the culture in which we live? What do you make of that? What's important to you? Ask people questions. Discover their story first, and then we can share our story. Discover their story, and then we share our story. And of course, in that moment, my second point is we get to tell a better story. We get to tell a better story. Culture is trying to tell us a story, isn't it? Our post-truth culture is telling us the following story. The story that if everyone is allowed to express themselves however they want, um, if everyone is free just to be yourself and pursue, uh, pursue being you, your own self-interest, then happiness is there for us all. That is the story that culture is telling us. Culture promises freedom, doesn't it? But you know what? It never delivers it. It doesn't deliver it. We see more and more people imprisoned by fear, depression, loneliness, anxiety, by poverty, injustice. Our post-truth culture is telling us a story, but it can't deliver on it. We know a better story, and I think people around us want to hear a better story. I do think we're the only ones to cotton on to the fact that our culture isn't delivering. They want to hear a better story. We have a better story to tell people. We have a better story to tell people than the story our culture is currently telling us. What is your story? How has Jesus changed your life? What is your story this evening? How is Jesus in the process of changing your life? I don't know about you, but when I look at what my life would be like if I didn't know Jesus, it's like I don't even want to go there. I don't even want to go there. As a teenager, I suffered from huge amounts of anxiety and fear. I don't even want to think where I'd be now if I hadn't found Jesus. My journey with Jesus has been about discovering um, my gospel identity, who I was made to be, to discover the joy of knowing Jesus. And I'm so thankful for all that he's done in my life. And that I get to be part of a story bigger than myself, just pursuing my own self-interest and happiness. Ugh, I don't want that. Do you know, I had this week the privilege of chatting to someone who had been in a small group that Matt and I had run years ago. And he said, do you know what? That small group changed my life. And I'll always be thankful for that. And in that moment, I wasn't like, yay me. I was like, do you know what? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that I get to be part of that, of people seeing their lives changed by Jesus. Thank you that I even have a small part to play. I'm overjoyed to get to do this. That's a bit of my story. What's yours? What's your story? Tell it to a culture in desperate need of a better story. Tell it and, of course, show it by the way that we live our lives. We tell our story and we show it by the way that we live our lives. Culture wants to see that, um, that there's similarity between the reality of our lives and the truth that we believe in, that those two things run together. The reality of our lives and then the truth that we believe in, that we are being transformed by the truth that we profess in, that it is transforming us. Do our lives tell a better story? I think as well as telling a better story, um, we are called to demonstrate a bigger story, an even bigger story, a kingdom story. And we see this nowhere more clearly than in the ministry of Jesus. You know, verse after verse, if you look through the Gospels, you will see Jesus teaching in the temple courts, teaching through scriptures, and then demonstrating the power of God. As well as proclaiming the truth, Jesus demonstrated it. Alongside his teaching, he showed kingdom power to show the reality, the truth of his message. 
I'm just going to rattle through a few just to kind of give you a little taste of what I'm talking about. So here we go. Buckle in. Matthew 13, 54. This is Jesus coming to his hometown. He began, to teach, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Or Mark 1, 27. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. What about Matthew 4, 23? Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. What about this? Luke 5, 17. One day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Do you see that? How those two things come together? Sharing, proclaiming the truth and demonstrating it by the power of God, the power of the kingdom, the Holy Spirit at work. How do we share our faith with others in a post-truth culture? We discover their story, we tell them a better story, and then we demonstrate a kingdom story. A bigger story, a story that is bigger than culture. Whatever that culture, current culture, whatever the current worldview may tell us. A story of the kingdom, of God breaking in, heaven on earth, sharing the truth in power. Now you may know this is a vineyard church, and it was started by a guy called John Wimber. And, um, and he used to call this power evangelism. That's what he used to call power evangelism. This is part of our heritage as a movement of churches, a movement of people, to show kingdom demonstration when we share the good news. You know, prophetic words, having a sense for someone and sharing it, listening to God for someone else, healing, casting out the demons. And John Wimber says this in his book, Power Evangelism. Most evangelism practiced in the West lacks the power seen in New Testament evangelism. Although there is always a need for more workers to reap the harvest, the current situation indicates a need also for more powerful ways of reaching people with the gospel. And Alan Scott says this in his book that I mentioned, Scattered Servants, the supernatural is not peripheral to our lifestyle. It is central. The gospel movement is a movement with power. There is no power without the gospel, but there is no gospel without power. And I read that, I was like, oh, and then there was a little footnote. So I turned to the back, and this is what his footnote says. Our ineffectiveness at bringing hope to our cities ought to sufficiently humble us to recognize our mistake in divorcing missional and supernatural. You know, our hope, our prayer, our vision is to see this city restored. Our ineffectiveness at bringing hope to our cities ought to sufficiently humble us to recognize our mistake in divorcing missional and supernatural. Proclamation and demonstration of the truth. I think a demonstration of the kingdom is so important in our culture because it cuts right through that cultural reality that we've talked about. It stops people in their tracks. It's deeply confrontational, isn't it? But it's confrontational in a way that demonstrates both the truth of God. You know, he exists. It stops people in their tracks in that moment with the reality, the truth of God. But it also demonstrates the love of God when it's done well. You know, that he cares enough for that person to have a word for them or that he cares enough for that, loves that person enough that he would see them healed or to speak to them, or whatever it is. It can show both the truth of God and the love of God in that moment. Now, our next sermon series is called Kingdom Carriers, so I'm not, I realize I'm not going to be able to do all of that justice. Um, we're going to talk about this loads more in the next few weeks. But I just wanted to finish today. I read a story this week from John Wimber back in the day. I mean, look how, how old school is this book. Oh, yes. Don't make them like that anymore. Cost £3.95. Look at that. Um, 
And I read this story, and it has messed with my mind, and I thought it was only fair to mess with yours too, if that's all right. And then at least we'll all be on the same page when it comes to ministry in a minute. So, settle in. Let me read. This is John Wimber speaking. It was the end of a long day of ministry, and I was exhausted. I had just completed a teaching conference in Chicago and was flying off to another speaking engagement in New York. I was looking forward to the plane ride as a chance to relax for a few hours before plunging back into teaching. But it was not to be the quiet, uneventful trip I had hoped for. Shortly after takeoff, I pushed back the reclining seat and readjusted the seatbelt, preparing to relax. My eyes wandered around the cabin, not looking at anything in particular. Seated across the aisle from me was a middle-aged man, a businessman, to judge from his appearance, nothing unusual or noteworthy about him. But in that split second that my eyes happened to be cast in his direction, I saw something that startled me. Written across his face in very clear and distinct letters, I thought I saw the word adultery. I blinked, rubbed my eyes and looked again. It was still there, adultery. I was seeing it, not with my natural eyes, but in my mind's eye. No one else on the plane, I'm sure, saw it. It was the Spirit of God communicating to me. The fact that it was a spiritual reality made it no less real. By now, the man had become aware that I was looking at him. Gaping at him might be a more accurate description. What do you want? He snapped. As he spoke, a woman's name came clearly to mind. This was more familiar to me. I'd become accustomed to the Holy Spirit bringing things to my awareness through these kinds of promptings. Somewhat nervously, I leaned across the aisle and said, Does the name Jane... Is not her real name, it says. Does the name Jane mean anything to you? His face turned ashen. We've got to talk, he stammered. The plane we're on was a jumbo jet, the kind with a small upstairs cocktail lounge. They don't make them like that anymore, do they? Not on Ryanair. <laughs> as I followed him, if only they did. Oh. As I followed him up the stairs to the lounge, I sensed the spirit speaking to me yet again. Tell him if he doesn't turn from his adultery, I'm going to take him. Terrific. All I'd wanted was a nice, peaceful plane ride to New York. Now, here I was, sitting in an aeroplane cocktail lounge with a man I'd never seen before, whose name I didn't even know, about to tell him God was going to take his life if he didn't stop his affair with some woman. We sat down in strained silence. He looked at me suspiciously for a moment and then asked, Who told you that name? God told me, I blurted out. I was too rattled to think of a way to ease into the topic more gracefully. God told you? He almost shouted the question. He was so shocked by what I had said. Yes, I answered, taking a deep breath. He also told me to tell you that unless you turn from this adulterous relationship, he is going to take your life. I braced myself for what I was sure would be an angry, defensive reaction. But to my relief, the instant I spoke to him, his defensiveness crumbled and his heart melted. In a choked, desperate voice, he asked me, what should I do? At last, I was back on familiar ground. I explained to him what it meant to repent and trust Christ, and I invited him to pray with me. With hands folded and head bowed, I began to lead him in a quiet prayer. Oh, God. That was as far as I got. The conviction of sin that had built up inside him seemed virtually to explode. Bursting into tears, he cried out, Oh, God, I'm so sorry, and launched into the most heart-rending repentance I had ever heard. It was impossible in such cramped quarters to keep hidden what was happening. Before long, everyone in the cocktail lounge was intimately acquainted with this man's past sinfulness and present contrition. Even the stewardesses were weeping right along with him. When he finished praying and regained his composure, we talked for a while about what had happened to him. The reason I was so upset when you first mentioned that name to me, he explained, 
was that my wife was sitting next, it was sitting in the seat right next to me. I didn't want her to hear. I knew, he was, I knew he wasn't going to like what I said to him next. You're going to have to tell her. I am, he responded weakly. When? Better do it right now, I said gently. The prospect of confessing to his wife was understandably somewhat intimidating, but he could see there was no other way. So again, I followed him down the stairs and back to our seats. I couldn't hear the conversation over the noise of the plane, but I could see his wife's stunned reaction, not only to his confession of infidelity, but also to his account of how the stranger sitting across the aisle had been sent by God to warn him of the consequences of his sin. Eyes wide with amazement and probably terror, she stared first at her husband, then at me, then back at her husband, and then back at me, as the amazing story unfolded. In the end, the man led his wife to accept Jesus right there on the aeroplane. There was little time to talk when we got off the aeroplane in New York. They didn't own a Bible, so I gave them mine. Then we went our separate ways. And then he says, this might seem like an unusual, if not bizarre event, yet I could write hundreds of other accounts like it, both from my own experience and from that of others whom I know. I call this type of encounter power evangelism, and I believe it was one of the most effective means of evangelism in the early church. Further, power evangelism appears to be present during periods of great missionary expansion and renewal throughout church history. How do we ready ourselves to share the truth of Jesus in our post-truth culture? Learn their story, tell a better story, demonstrate a kingdom story. Should we stand? I'd love just to pray.